Hello there, and welcome back to Peace In Their Time, episode 144, Sayonara Internationalism. Today we're taking our continued coverage of the immediate effects of the Great Depression out to the Far East and starting a new mini-series focusing in on Japan. Rest assured, Japan will not be as inward-facing as it was last season, and the era of the Depression is when that empire again turned its focus outwards in search of solutions to its internal problems. And just to reintroduce some concepts from episodes 52 to 61, Japan, by the end of 1929, was geared towards a more internationalist course when it came to its relations with the rest of the world. What that means is that there was no active territorial expansion going on, and instead Japan's leaders relied on a system of collective security in Asia that was established with the Washington Naval Treaties. In addition to limiting the size of the navies of the various global powers, the collection of treaties also demarcated mutual limitations when it came to regional influence and guarantees that they would support each other if someone broke those rules. This worked for many of Japan's leaders, especially the ones who favored Democratic Party politics having the most sway internally. The idea of cooperation and collective security would mean that Japan would not be sucked into an arms race that its potent but comparatively limited economy could not hope to win against the U.S. or even the U.K. It would also limit the influence of the military over internal affairs, as the armed forces would be maintained at a manageable size. And on top of all that, just because on-the-ground imperialism was limited to what Japan had already conquered, the nation's soft power in China was free to expand. Which is, of course, what happened. Japanese businesses expanded their footprint all over China, directing raw materials back to the home islands. Their operations grew to the point that commercial activity between China and Japan dwarfed all other great powers combined. And Japanese money lined the pockets of China's leaders all through that nation's warlord period. This did provoke a backlash among Chinese, whose nationalists were infuriated to no end by the interference of an outside power that had both humiliated their nation for the past several decades, and for centuries before that had been seen as a bandit-infested backwater. The Chinese people increasingly set up embargoes on Japanese imports, which did a great deal to upset Japan's economic plans. The entire idea was that China would supply cheap input goods, whereupon the Japanese would produce the profitable manufactured goods, which they would sell back to China. That the Chinese increasingly refused to play ball was a cause of concern among the Japanese business class. That they would do it right as Japan's economic woes went from the general shaky conditions of the 20s to a full-blown depression, that was a matter of concern to the entire ruling elite. And more ominously, it caused actionable concern among the Japanese officer corps, many of whom harbored ambitions of territorial expansion and who saw war with the Soviet Union as an inevitability. Securing China as an economic vassal was good, but if they resisted Japan's influence, well, they'd have to be induced the hard way. And the very internationalist viewpoint held by the Japanese leaders in power was itself under siege by the end of the 20s. When the Washington Naval Treaty was established, both China and the Soviet Union were hitting the nadir of their mutual fortunes. China was in the midst of a multifactional civil war. The USSR was just emerging from one of its own. The two nations were badly underdeveloped and just barely hanging on. What I'm getting at is that they were not active participants in shaping the detente of the 1920s Pacific region. By the end of the decade, that was all changing. 
By 1928, Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang government had managed to establish itself as the leading force in China, even if there were still multitudes of warlords that only swore loose fealty to its banner. And as was demonstrated by the Jinan Incident of May 1938, KMT soldiers were willing to take on Japanese ones. Just a quick refresher, that was an incident during the KMT's northern expedition where the Japanese thought it prudent to deploy a small unit of troops to protect their nationals in the Shandong province. Advancing KMT troops butted heads with them, shooting started, and Chang had to offer a hasty apology to defuse the situation. Nobody came away well from the incident. The Japanese public and leadership both were perturbed by that their troops would be challenged by the Chinese. For generations, the Japanese media portrayed China as a backward land, its people incapable of defending themselves. Even among the Pan-Asians in Japan who wished to see a united coalition of Asian people supporting each other, China was not held in high regard, and its immediate future could at best be a sidekick to Japan. For China and Chang, the incident was an embarrassment that confirmed that even if China wasn't ready to fight the Japanese just yet, that they were the primary enemy of the nation. As the 30s dawned, it was commonly accepted by both nations that some sort of action would have to be taken. The Japanese became more open to military intervention in China to protect their national interests. The Chinese dreamed of a campaign of liberation. The Soviet Union presented another challenge to Japan's policy of internationalism. The territorial unit of Russia had been a longtime enemy of Japan's, and the Siberian expedition and Japan's policy of anti-communism had cemented bad relations between the empire and the new state. The thing was that during the 20s, that didn't really matter too much. The Soviet Union was isolated, underdeveloped, and militarily weak. But by the end of the decade, that had started to change. I didn't cover it last season because I wrapped my China coverage in 1928, so look forward to more details on it in the next miniseries. But during the back half of 1929, the Manchurian warlord Zhang Zhuleng decided to poke the bear. The Soviet Union had kept a hold of the old Tsarist railroads running across the northern half of Manchuria, and Zhang decided that they were weak enough in the Far East that he could take the railroads over and get away with it. Which, hey, conventional wisdom supported the Chinese in this case. The Red Army had been badly underfunded and lacked a lot of heavy weaponry in general. The Far Eastern Command was one of the most neglected regions and was still only connected to the rest of the nation by the Trans-Siberian Railway. If Zhang stuck to taking over the railroads on his own territory and simply repulsed Soviet attacks, he could expect to maybe win. That didn't happen, though, and the Red Army turned out to be a lot better organized than anyone had expected. Despite not being the mechanized machine that would cut through Manchuria 16 years later, the Red Army crushed Zhang's troops and forced him to leave control of the railways to the USSR. This signaled the return of the Russian menace to Manchuria and immediately set off alarm bells in Tokyo. Zhang was obviously incapable of stopping Soviet incursions, so someone else would have to take that responsibility if the Red Army got aggressive. What these two cases signaled was that Japan's position on the Asian mainland might be under threat in the near future. And the problem that the nation's leaders immediately came upon was that their international partners weren't really that interested in expanding their collective security to the Asian mainland. The Westerners had all made accommodations with Chang and the KMT and felt that Japan's handling of the Jinan incident had deservedly provoked the ire of China. And their interests did not go so far north, so nobody was interested in making security guarantees directed against the USSR. 
Coupled with ongoing dismissals of Japan as an equal partner coming from the West, the effect on both public opinion and those in the halls of power was a general disillusionment with collective security. The old logic of the Japanese Empire started to re-enter the minds of its leaders, namely that formula that the homelands needed a perimeter of conquest to defend it, and then that perimeter needed its own outlying buffer once it was properly integrated into the empire, creating a never-ending quest for expansion. This was also unacceptable to the international community, which forbid such aggression in their modern day. It also ignored the fact that there was precious little actually threatening the home islands. The Westerners had given up the idea of colonizing them like China generations ago, and neither the Chinese or USSR were the threats that Japan's leaders thought they were. The easy conquests had been obtained, any further ones would necessitate vast expenditures of people and resources that were at first glance unacceptable. However, leaders deluded themselves into thinking that future interventions would go much as they had in Korea or Formosa. It would only be once the new foreign adventures were actually underway that Japan would have to grapple with the gigantic costs of such endeavors. And by that time, national pride was on the line, and it was all too late to stop it. That's all for the future, though. The road to unleashing Japanese militarism still had a little ways to go. Okay, foreign policy-wise, the orthodoxy of the previous decade was falling away. What about Japan's internal politics? By the end of 1929, it seemed as though representative, democratic governance of the country had become an established fact. Remember that under the Meiji Constitution, that there were numerous centers of power by design. There was the Diet, or the Parliament effectively, which comprised the unelected Noble House of Peers and the elected House of Representatives. The courts were independent, as was a separate Privy Council that met and advised the Emperor directly. The Prime Minister and his Cabinet of Ministers that oversaw the bureaucracy were their own unit and did not automatically draw its members from the Diet, instead being appointed by the Emperor. Finally, the armed forces were commanded directly by the Emperor, although they would be represented in the Cabinet as well and largely played as independent entities. For the longest time, Japanese politics had been dominated by the Genro, the noble oligarchs that had supported the Meiji Emperor in overthrowing the Shogunate, and the various cliques that formed around them. The Genro, though, had largely aged out of leadership, and their successors didn't command the same legitimacy among the people. Pressure mounted for the controlling parties of the House of Representatives to take leadership roles, which, during the era of the Taisho Emperor, became the norm. The Taisho Emperor was notable for suffering from physical or mental maladies that prevented him from becoming an active hand of the nation's governance. Now, just because elected officials started dominating government didn't mean that Japan's democracy enjoyed full support. There were always nobles who preferred the government be directly appointed, militarists who favored authoritarian rule, and others who had their own issues with the elected parties. On that last bit, it's important to remember that Japan's parties were not quite as democratic as they might initially appear. There were limitations on who could vote based on land and wealth qualifications, and so the electorate was not truly representative of the people as a whole. Suffrage would be expanded after 1925, by that time, millions had grown disaffected by a democratic establishment that had ignored them for so long. Just as an example, the largest and most active of the parties during the 20s, the Sayukai, based its support among rural landholders, business interests, and prosperous specialists. So, basically the middle and upper classes only. When the Sayukai's leaders weren't trying to rein in the militarists or secure its supporters' places in the bureaucracy, the party worked to provide good, old-fashioned pork-barrel legislation that would send money to their supporters. 
Their rising influence was noted in the 20s by the Zaibatsu, business conglomerates that were umbrella groups that controlled every type of enterprise imaginable, from insurance and finance to mining to shipping to manufacturing. Big ones were familiar names like Mitsui and Mitsubishi, although the 30s would see a new wave of them like Nissan and Nakajima crop up. The Zaibatsu would offer donations and even outright bribes to insulate their positions from adverse legislation, which was kind of necessary because the public was well aware of how powerful and wealthy the Zaibatsu and business class in general were, and were none too happy about it. When the conservative elements of Japanese society began to push back against party politics, they were aided greatly by popular opinion having grown disenchanted with the blatant corruption and disinterest in the lives of normal people. And speaking of public opinion, the media of Japan would, by degrees, also turn more conservative and nationalistic as time went on, influencing the very active discourse going on throughout the country. The resurgence of Chinese and Russian fortunes were not just problems within the halls of power. Ordinary people were concerned about these developments as well, and they were less than impressed with the indifference or even the dismissiveness shown by the West. That disillusion with the policies of the past decade would lead to much greater support of adventurism than existed earlier. Remember, a big topic of last season was the Siberian expedition and how public opinion being against the military was a huge reason why it was abandoned. A little under a decade later, and the public was now fearful that outside threats were very real, that the internationalist party leaders were too weak to meet the challenges, and that military solutions were now acceptable. And part of that fear was not just about the perceptions of outside threats or, you know, concerns that elected leaders were weak. The Depression hit Japan pretty hard, which was compounded by poor economic performance during most of the 20s in general. Because America was the primary trading partner of Japan, the aftershocks of the Wall Street crash hit them almost immediately, causing a key destination for exports to dry up. On top of that, the decision to lift an embargo on gold exports in January 1930 made the situation even worse. The Japanese, like everyone else during World War I, had put in place an embargo on letting gold leave the country, which meant that when the war ended, there were still gold reserves on hand. Other nations gradually lifted their embargoes in the ensuing years as the regular gold standard system was returned to. Japan, which spent the decade lurching from crisis to crisis, never felt confident enough to lift its embargo and potentially let gold leave the country. Which was fair, in those days it seemed like gold only flowed to New York and Paris. The issue, though, was that it was getting difficult for Japan to access foreign capital markets while playing by its own rules. So the government elected to end the embargo and become a normal, gold-standard country. They also elected to lift the embargo with the yen being overvalued, meaning that it would be converted for quite a bit of gold. As I must have covered a half dozen times before, that was, this was done mostly as a matter of prestige. And in reality, it made exports increasingly uncompetitive. Which was bad, since this was a global depression, and everybody was dumping commodities at rock-bottom prices. So the export economy broke down completely, and the domestic one was wholly incapable of absorbing the excess production. Exports were halved, chemical and heavy industries saw declines, the mining sector slashed its national workforce by 40%. To add insult to injury, Chiang Kai-shek threw up tariffs on Japanese imports in 1931, restricting a major market. Wages were slashed, and the Zaibatsu resorted to setting fixed prices so that they could maintain some stability. Not that they were under siege as much as smaller enterprises, 
The Zaibatsu had all accumulated enough cash that their operations continued on, just with, you know, of course, massive layoffs. This was noticed by the general population and was cause of a great deal of discontentment. The hyper-rich and connected appeared to ride out the depression's ill effects without suffering along with everyone else. Meanwhile, unions came under the double strain of the downturn and the eyes of authorities looking to crush leftist activity. This led many a union to adopt a collective nationalist ideology expressing patriotism and commitment to the emperor as a means of uh, PR defense. This is important to note because unions are not inherently leftist, and when things started really getting out of hand in the 30s, there would not be a resistant urban proletariat to try and put on the brakes. And you could be sure that the rural landholders that formed a core part of the Sayukai's support were hopping mad at the collapse of food prices, both in food and raw silk. In the span of a year, the price of raw silk dropped by half, which was bad for the two million families who earned their livings harvesting the material. In some regions, food prices were such that it was impossible to get any return at all, making it more productive to have simply not planted anything. By 1933, rural incomes had crashed by two-thirds of their 1929 levels. It was a disaster for the still very large rural segment of the population, and it was met by a grassroots movement advocating village communalism. Centered around the local village, communities would pitch in together to ensure that everyone could keep their homes and that each family had enough to get by. There wasn't a specific rule book, so how this was actually carried out varied from place to place. And it wasn't quite the collective farms of certain communist countries either. Everybody still had their plots and houses, just that everyone pitched in a little of their excess profit, time, and labor to help out the community, which also extended to cutting tenants some slack on their rents. This tendency towards communalism was pretty quickly picked up on by the government, who then started encouraging such associations and provided economic incentives for joining them, including delays on having to pay back loans. In doing so, the national government extended their controls of the rural economy, which, keep in mind, was already visible as their appointees were common sites as adjudicators for rural disputes. This didn't make the problems go away, and poverty became a fact of life in the countryside, with rural prosperity never really recovering until after the war. So when I said that their farmer base was hopping mad in this era, it was probably convenient for the Sayukai that it was out of power at this time. I left last season with Prime Minister Tanaka having run afoul of Emperor Hirohito in his newly assertive court and resigning on account of pressure coming from the palace. His resignation was taken as an opportunity by the Sayukai's enemies to slide right into power. The ruling party afterwards, the Menseto, which, just for reference, was at least the third permutation of an anti-Sayukai party in the Diet, opted to ignore the crisis and treat it as a storm to be weathered. It would prove to be one hell of a storm. And in the midst of all the economic dislocation, there was yet another bit of bad news on the foreign relations front. This was the London Naval Conference of 1930, which finalized a treaty of the same name on April 22nd of that year. It was effectively an expansion of the earlier Washington Naval Treaty. The same nations participated in it, and similar conditions were agreed to. Similar, but not exact. This conference focused on hammering out agreements regarding ships smaller than capital ships, meaning submarines, cruisers, and destroyers. The London Naval Treaty wasn't nearly the occasion that the Washington one was, so I'm going to only briefly cover the details of it here, instead of trying to finagle it into an entire episode. And besides, the main grievances coming out of it were from the Japanese anyway. 
Uh, submarines were restricted in tonnage, with each ship being restricted to 2,000 tons, aside from a handful of slightly larger ones permitted for each nation. Nothing really interesting, except that it restricted the construction of uh, what were called cruiser submarines, meaning bigger subs built for long-range patrols that oftentimes sported a cruiser-sized cannon on its top deck, which you probably already know that it is not a feature found on, you know, modern submarines, so it was one of those developmental dead ends. That being said, they would still make appearances here and there in the future, so to shed a little more detail on these ships, like the surface cruisers of the day, submarine cruisers were designed to travel long distances on their own and perform a variety of functions on their own. And to explain the larger deck cannons many examples of the ship type sported, uh, early on, submarines made just as much use of their deck cannons as they did torpedoes, if not more so. This was especially true during World War I when the Germans were raiding merchant shipping. Using torpedoes was expensive and ships could carry only so many. And when striking unarmed merchants, well, a small deck gun was really all you needed to sink those ships. Adding a cruiser-sized cannon or battery of cannons, let's say up to the 6- to 8-inch guns that you'd find on a cruiser, would theoretically sink merchant ships faster, allow those big guns to sneak up on a foe on account of the submarine's underwater capabilities, and also give a small and cheap sub the punch to engage larger targets. Turns out that while the addition did give subs those capabilities, it didn't do it well enough to justify the cost. The heavier cannons weren't as cost-effective in killing merchants as a smaller gun, and the sub itself was way too vulnerable to bigger ships in a stand-up fight, even allowing for a hypothetical element of surprise. And while the operating ranges of the various classes were certainly impressive, the subs were so big that they were much more easily detected than their smaller brethren. And that problem of detection just got worse as technological advancements were made, especially when sonar started becoming widely used. So, no big loss on restricting them. Uh, funny story, this wasn't actually the worst submarine idea of the era. The Japanese would develop a carrier submarine, which uh, was a sub that could launch seaplanes from an enclosure that opened and closed. If that sounds clunky and impractical... Yeah, yeah, obviously yes, it, it wasn't a good idea. Destroyers were also restricted, no surprise there as their torpedoes made them punch way above their weight. The UK was especially sensitive to the French building swarms of cheap destroyers to potentially, you know, swarm their battleships. Warships smaller than destroyers were confirmed to have no restrictions, which led to a minor renaissance in the torpedo boat category. I didn't mention them back in episode 112 because they didn't really roll around with the main fleets. As their name suggests, they existed to deliver torpedoes. They were developed in the late 1800s to provide a cheap counter to battleships. TBs were fast, so they'd dart in among the lubbering battleships and make them eat a barrage of torpedoes directed against their soft underbellies. And for those of you in the naval know, you might have been irked that I didn't mention them in relation to destroyers, as those ships were designed originally to screen the battleships and sink the TBs. Destroyers had a number of responsibilities and roles added on after that initial development, including anti-sub duties and torpedo capabilities of their own. But the torpedo boats were always there, really just doing the same thing that ships of that type always did. I'll be talking about them here and there in Season 3, but again, they're a little niche compared to the main craft that I covered last season. Anyway, the big problem for Japan to come out of London were the restrictions on cruisers. The Washington Naval Treaty hadn't limited them, and Japan had especially taken to building up its heavy cruiser force as a way to build cheap warships that still packed a significant punch and could be risked where heavier ships could not. 
The negotiations in London threw all that out, implementing a 60% heavy cruiser limit when compared to the U.S.'s overall number. The new restrictions created a firestorm of protest among the Japanese Navy, and part of their delegation to the conference was Keito Kanji, the admiral who had so notably thrown a fit during the Washington conference. The treaty was approved by the emperor, his court, and the sitting prime minister of the Menseito, Hamaguchi Osachi. This time, though, the military wasn't going to sit still for it, and the Navy never reconciled itself to the treaty. In fact, members of the Navy joined with the Army and the Sayukai to campaign against the treaty's ratification. The Army was also tired of the internationalist approach and wanted to force a break, while the Sayukai as a group were bitter at how their prime minister, Tanaka, had been forced out in favor of Hamaguchi. The treaty still went through, and the anti-Hamaguchi configuration settled for slandering his name in public which would have been one thing during a period of relative calm, but spring of 1930 was anything but. People were mad, and they were getting radicalized, and that radicalization was almost exclusively going in a right-wing direction. Remember last season that when suffrage was expanded in 1925, that the left had enjoyed modest increases in their presence in the Diet, which was then cracked down upon and destroyed by the authorities. There wasn't much of a left in Japan to influence events. So, yeah, get set for pretty much exclusively right-wing violence in Japan. And you're not even going to have to wait. On November 14, 1930, Hamaguchi was standing at the Tokyo train station, not far from where Prime Minister Hara had himself been assassinated in November 1921. A man named Sagoya Tomeo, who was part of an ultra-nationalist society connected to the Sayukai called the Aikokusha, shot the Prime Minister. It appeared as if the wound was not immediately fatal, and he would return to his post in March 1931 after a period of recuperation. But the injury refused to heal, and he was forced to step down only a month after returning. By the end of August 1931, he was dead. It was the beginning of what would prove to be a decade of assassinations and assassination attempts, which was not helped by that nationalist turn in the public discourse I mentioned earlier. Also, after the London Naval Treaty was signed off on in September 1930, the Navy leaders were so infuriated that a purge was carried out against those who had supported the treaty, radicalizing that branch of the military still more. Meanwhile, in the Army, young officers that wanted the Empire to go its own way were increasingly getting bolder, and discipline was starting to break down. The prospect of challenges on the Asian mainland fueled an expansionist drive in the Army that radicalized them against any perceived weakness at home. The nation's leadership was aware of this trend, but could not summon the will to have a confrontation with the army. The biggest part of the problem was that the far-right elements were seen as patriots even by their domestic opponents. Hirohito himself directed the generals closest to him to reign in the most bellicose officers, but the best they could do was reassign them to posts on the periphery of the empire away from Tokyo. Which was fine and dandy to stave off a coup, but left those officers on the frontiers where they could make mischief on an international scale. And that'll be where I pick up next week, as I finally get to the Mukden incident and the invasion of Manchuria. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.